was Jesus. Maimonides said that in a trial, women are disqualified from testifying. Contrast that with Jesus choosing two women as witnesses of his resurrection. Rabbi Ashi claims that it is permitted to divorce a woman if the gap between her breasts is too large. This spacing is unsuitable, and it is considered a defect which allows to divorce her without rights. Rabbi Baghdadi A woman who cheats on her husband would be taken out and burnt immediately. Rabbi Isaac Cohen In the true world they will see, a woman is a bag full of excrement. Rabbi Eyal Karim It is permissible to rape a woman from an enemy army, to raise the morale of the soldiers. Rabbi Eliza Berland A woman doesn't think and lacks the double brain a man has. Rabbi Storm A woman must not be allowed to drink wine, for if she drinks too much, she will desire to have sex with a donkey in the marketplace. Rabbi Yossi Misraki, he has fulfilled the commandment of procreation, and for the rapist, it is considered a mitzvah. Rabbi Yuri Sherki, women menstruate because of their sins. Rabbi Al-Yashiv, it is permissible to put to shame a woman if she uses the religious buses. Rabbi Arush, a woman will never admit to her mistakes and cannot accept admonishment. Rabbi of the Western Wall. Women diminish the sanctity of the synagogue floors. Rabbi Ovedia Yosef. A woman who does not know how to cook is a cripple. Rabbi Avina claims that in a state of emergency, a man should be rescued before a woman. Rabbi Isaac Cohen. Daughters are a punishment to their parents. Sons are a blessing. The numerological value of the word daughters is equal to that of the word damage. Sons bring peace to the world. Sons bring affluence to the world. Birthing daughters causes a great deal of putrefaction in the woman's womb. Women carry no good fortune. Women are nothing. Women are hollow. They are naught. The word female has the same numerical value as the word damned. Males are perfection. Rabbi Aitin Baghdadi A woman who wears a short-sleeved skirt is committing first-degree murder. Rabbi Amnon Itzak Women are forbidden from driving a car. Forbidden from owning a cellular phone, women are not allowed to gain weight. A woman is just as any other object. Scorn then and now. Dear women, if the attitude towards women among certain rabbis today frightens you, try to imagine how much worse it was 2,000 years ago, during the time of Jesus. It's important to understand how deep the misogyny goes in rabbinic halakha and in the Talmud. Consider for a moment the ramifications of these statements on the daily lives of mothers, daughters, and women in general. And no, these are not a minority opinion, but rather the rabbinic halakha throughout the generations, which trampled all respect towards women and treated them as insipid and practically worthless. Let's see what Jewish sages of old have been teaching about women in the Talmud for the past 2,000 years. Rabbi Bayah bin Asher said, The female is irrelevant in creation for she is not more than a parasitic thing taken from him for his utilization to become a special tool for his use as one of his special body parts to be used by him. Midrash Bereshit Rabbah, Chapter 17 As the woman was created, Satan was created with her. Tractate Sutta 22 Whoever teaches his daughter Torah teaches her obscenity.
Ralbag Gasonides said, They women have no more brains than animals, if they have any at all. Maimonides wrote that females are suitable for sexual intercourse from age three and should be available for bearing children from age twelve. Rambam Mishneh Torah Sefer Nashim Ishut Chapter Three Halakha Eleven. The Jerusalem Talmud says that it is forbidden to give jewelry to a woman as women are arrogant. Tractate Shabbat Chapter Six Page Thirty Three. Rabbi Isaac Luria, one of the great philosophers in Kabbalah, would also spit on such women. The sacred Ari would therefore spit any time he saw an insolent woman, and spitting at the sight of an immodest woman is a great virtue. The Messiah's Donkey, page one hundred and eighty-two. More gross and crude quotes could have been included, which would make you fall out of your chairs. But you already get the idea. Also, we would rather not bring them to mind and defile your thoughts as well as your own. Jesus introduced a very different attitude. One of the reasons why the rabbis who lived at the time of Jesus rejected him was that Jesus threatened their authority, whereas they treated women as something trivial and almost completely worthless. Jesus broke both religious and social constructs. He battled religious chauvinism and the humiliating treatment of women in his generation. Maimonides said that in a trial, women are disqualified from testifying. Laws of Testimony, Chapter Nine, Halakha Two. Contrast that with the weight that Jesus put on the testimony of women in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter twenty-eight, Jesus chose two women as witnesses of his resurrection, entrusting them with the task of telling the other disciples what had happened. When Jesus saw his disciples again, he scolded them for not believing the women. Maimonides also instructed husbands: the husband should prevent his wife from leaving the household, except once a month or twice a month, if necessary. As there is no beauty for a woman but to sit at the corner of a house, unlike Maimonides, who demanded that wives be locked in their homes, in the New Testament, Paul recommends a woman for a key position in the community and demands all of her needs be met. Romans chapter sixteen. In a separate incident, the New Testament praises a woman, Dorcas from Jaffa, for her good deeds and for the fact that she was often benevolent towards everyone in her area. Tractate Derek Eretz advises staying away from women. Do not talk to women much, for every woman's conversation is nothing but words of infidelity. Tractate Derek Eretz Ariat Halakha thirteen. In contrast, Jesus encourages Miriam and Martha to stop running around doing household chores, relax, and sit down to study the Torah with him. While rabbis forbid physical contact between men and women, and even encourage men to keep their distance from a woman's company, as it is written, one who excessively converses with a woman causes evil to himself, neglects the study of Torah, and in the end inherits hell. Avot chapter one, Jesus did the exact opposite. Matthew chapter nine describes the following: A ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, "My daughter has died." But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, "If I only touch his garment, I will be made well." Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, "Take heart, daughter; your faith has made you well." And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, 
Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Matthew 9, 18-25 Jesus loved women, respected them as God's creation, and refused to treat them as objects. Maimonides said, Any woman who avoids doing the craft she must do shall be forced to do them, even with a whip. Hilchot Ishat, Chapter 21, Halakha 10 In response, Rabbi Avraham ben David claimed that it is sufficient to simply starve her until she gives in. Unlike those two, the New Testament instructs men. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 Instead of whipping, the New Testament orders men to give their lives for the sake of their wives. Jesus dared to oppose a social, cultural, and gender-related convention that was made in the name of God and religion. The book of John in the New Testament describes a situation in which the rabbis in the time of Jesus threw a woman who had been caught committing adultery at Jesus' feet in order to test him. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. When they heard it, they went away one by one. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. John 8, 3-11 What would Rabbi Yossi Mizraki say about such a woman? A woman who is not a virgin is a damaged female. She's worth as much as an open cola bottle. In another event, Jesus broke another equally significant religious taboo when he not only willingly contacted and spoke to a woman, but a Samaritan woman, a Gentile. She was surprised that a Jewish man would even talk to her and said to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the past two thousand years, the rabbis have been trying to hide the Messiah from you, who not only loved and appreciated Jewish women, but Gentiles as well. The rabbis, whether or not they are aware of it, present the God of Israel in a cruel and false way, which is no more than a mirror reflecting their own misogynistic worldviews. Dear woman, it is important for you to know that God does not want to humiliate you. He does not see you as worthless and does not condemn you to a life of inferiority, servitude and abuse. He loves you and wants you to know who he really is, so much so that he revealed himself in the form of the Messiah lived among us as one of us, suffered with and for us, and gave up his life as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. That is God's love for both women and men alike. Is an oral law truly needed to understand the Bible? There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Joshua 8.35 The myth of the oral law video we made has reached over one million views. This chapter deals with that subject, 
and will reveal what's wrong with the rabbi's claim that the written law of Moses cannot be understood without the rabbinic tradition clarifying it in the oral law. Is rabbinic tradition, i.e. the oral law, essential for understanding the written law of Moses? This is what the rabbis want people to believe. In that way, people stay dependent on them. This dependency brings them power which also enables them to extort people and make a lot of money. But in the Bible, God tells the people of Israel the exact opposite. From the beginning, God made it clear to Israel that His commandments are not complicated, so that in order to understand the written laws, there's no need for a rabbi to explain them. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither it is beyond the sea, that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Deuteronomy 30, 11-14 The biblical context clarifies what the original author meant. Therefore, according to the rules of biblical interpretation, the biblical commandments are based on the most simple reading of the text. There's nothing wrong with asking for help if more understanding is needed, but it's an unhealthy situation to be dependent on one person who allegedly is the only one with the authority to interpret. But that's what the rabbis want people to think. The rabbis frequently make use of a logical fallacy that is an appeal to ignorance, an argument from ignorance. A logical mistake in which one tries to arrive at a conclusion from lack of knowledge or proof. For example, let's say I don't understand a commandment like, What is an order, foreskin, and how do I need to cut it off? Or I don't know what a sukkah, booth is, and what color it should be, what angle or how to build it. Therefore, they tell us, there has to be an oral law that explains and interprets these details I don't know. See what Rabbi Yossi Mizraki says. Listen up. There is a simple point to make here. The day you have an answer to it, we'll continue the discussion. There are 613 written commandments, and none of them contain an explanation on how to implement them. Nothing. This typical example was taken from a lecture by one of the most famous rabbis today, Rabbi Yossi Mizrahi, given in January 2017 in Ramat Gan. In this lecture, a 17-year-old boy had challenged Rabbi Mizrahi to prove the existence of an oral law after telling the rabbi that he had watched our video proving that no such thing was given to Moses by God at Mount Sinai. If there was such a thing, surely the rabbis would be in agreement about it, but they aren't. The rabbis don't agree about the meaning of biblical words. It's important to remember that today, thousands of years after the giving of the law, it's very likely that people don't understand every word, or that people understand it differently than the original meaning. It's also important to remember that the biblical Hebrew the people of Israel used is similar but not identical to the modern Hebrew spoken today. But just because ancient words, terms, expressions or commandments are hard to understand, that does not mean the people who were alive at that time didn't understand them either. For example, in Ezekiel 1, we find the word Kashmal. Obviously, the meaning of Kashmal at the time of Ezekiel and in the context of the text is not identical to its modern meaning. Electricity. The word Kashmal is a perfect example showing how the sages contradict one another, and therefore their words cannot be the oral law passed on by Moses. The rabbis do not even agree with one another concerning the meaning of Kashmal, 
Rashi says that Kashmal is the name of an angel. Rabbi Baya ben Asher, however, claims that it refers to animals. In Pashanat Matsudat's David, it supposedly refers to flames. Then again, Abba Banil states that it means prophecy. Malbim says that Kashmal is God's presence and furthermore claims that it is forbidden to accept Abba Banil's interpretation. He says, Kashmal, God forbid that we accept Abba Banil's opinion. Confusing thing, this oral law. Now a step-by-step -step examination of each claim from Yossi Misraki's lecture. The example of circumcision. What's an orla? How would you know what an orla is? How did Moses know where to cut? It's not written how to circumcise. How come they all knew where to cut? Rabbi Yossi Misrahi. Seems like Misrahi forgot that the command of the circumcision was given to Abraham hundreds of years before the Sinai covenant, which supposedly was when the oral law was given together with the written law. So did Abraham have a rabbi who traveled back in time in order to explain how circumcision is done? According to Professor Nissan Rubin and Professor Binyamin Maza, the circumcision of the male is not only a Jewish phenomenon. It was a known tradition among the majority of peoples. In fact, in ancient times, it was common also in the area of Egypt, Assyria, and around the Mediterranean around 3,000 years BC. The example of tefillin. Tefillin, arm wrapping, continues Rabbi Masrahi. How come? How come they all put on black tefillin all over the world? And how come that already for thousands of years, people in Asia make sushi with sheets of seaweed? Maybe the Japanese also received an oral law with sushi rules. When a certain tradition exists for thousands of years, it does not mean that God ordered it. Actually, the word tefillin is not mentioned in the Bible at all. Rather, the sages took the word totafat in Deuteronomy 6.8 and claimed it referred to tefillin. However, anyone who compares the commandment of the totafat in Deuteronomy 6.8 with the identical commandment given earlier in Exodus 39 will see that the meaning of totafat is actually a reminder or memorial. The commandment as totafat between your eyes does not command people to put a box in their foreheads. Rather, it is a commandment to always remember God in your thoughts. The example of Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. What is a fruit of splendid trees? asks Misraki. It's written that we need four of them, four kinds. Misraki doesn't understand how to discern the meaning of four kinds and in general how to understand anything connected to Sukkot without the explanation provided by the oral law. First of all, in Deuteronomy 4 and 13, God warns not to add anything to the commands written in the Torah. You shall not add to the word that I command you. Deuteronomy 4.2 Therefore, even though the Bible doesn't say exactly how to build the booth, they still do not have the authority to add to their own commandments, rules and regulations that can't be found anywhere in the Bible. But that's exactly what the sages did. And as if that wasn't enough, they even did that in God's name. So they need to be called to account for using God's name in vain. Why didn't God give clear and detailed guidelines in the Torah for every little thing? For example, how the booths need to be set up, how big at what angle, color, and so on, or which kind of splendid trees, most likely for the same reason why God did not give all the flowers in the world the same shape and color. He does not want everything to be done the same way and look identical. Look around at God's creation. The colors, shapes, and smells show an amazing variety. God is creative, and he made human beings in his image, 
with the capacity to create. We have the freedom and ability to express the creativity He puts in each one of us. God loves diversity and creativity. If God did not let us know in which size or form, angle or direction the booth has to be set up, then apparently that's not what's important to God. Rather, He left it up to us, to our imagination and creativity. Apparently, He did not want us to be fixed on a certain form, model, or structure. Rather, He allowed us to express our creativity and individuality. All that was important to God is that we'd remember that He brought us out of Egypt. The example of Shabbat. It's not written in the Bible how to consecrate the Sabbath. It's not written in the Bible what work is. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Exodus thirty-five three. Pay attention to this. An action was prohibited, namely to light a fire. The fire is not the problem, but all the efforts that went into making a fire. Why? The context tells us. One verse earlier, it is written. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work in it shall be put to death. Exodus thirty-five two. Note that the word work was mentioned twice and not by accident. Egypt, the people of Israel worked non-stop. Now they are commanded not to work, to rest one day per week. It's a day set aside for God, family, and rest. The lighting of a fire was considered work. Why? Not because God has a problem with fire, but because making a fire was a lot of hard work. In biblical times, unlike today, lighting a fire involved going off to find wood, cutting down trees, schlepping the wood back to the camp, cutting it into smaller pieces, building a stack of wood, and then trying to set the whole stack on fire. It was hours of hard physical work that should not be done on a Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath is for resting, relaxing, spending time with family. And deeply considering God, it's a rest for the body and the soul. All those rules that the oral law added—not to break a yogurt cup on the Sabbath, not to rip toilet paper, not to dry off, not to look into the mirror, and other ridiculous rabbinical rules—completely miss God's purpose and the actual goal of rest and renewal. Did God give extra instructions about the tabernacle? Misraki claims. Build it the way I showed you on the mountain, the way I showed you on the mountain. In general, I showed you how to build the tabernacle. God showed things to Moses that were not written in the Torah. This is evidence of the oral law. It's written in past tense. When I showed you, when I showed you then, according to Rabbi Misraki, the words "when I showed you" implies an oral transmission. Without noticing, out of all the chapters he could have chosen, he chose one that proves the exact opposite of his claims. Since Moses did write in meticulous detail and in numerous chapters all the commandments connected to the tabernacle, see Exodus chapters twenty-five to thirty, chapters thirty-five to forty, and it should be obvious that Misraki's claim backfired on him. Moses actually does clarify in writing the way the tabernacle has to be built in all its detail. What would the sages gain from coming up with thousands of rules? Glad you asked. Let's take for example Sukkot. The feast of booths or tabernacles. The rabbis are the only authority and have the right to determine for the people of Israel what a kosher sukkah booth is and what the four species are. What would the etrog sellers do with their customers being obligated to the rules of the rabbis? It turns out that religion is a lucrative business. This rabbinic tradition preserves and encourages this business, typical for other religions too, that gets validation from one source only. 
it functions like a monopoly or a cartel. For example, according to the website Kipa, the market of the four species alone has a turnover of tens of millions in one single week, once a year. Now imagine what could be done with the billions coming from yeshivas and the kosher market, money coming from all over. We could have eradicated poverty in Israel. The same thing also applies to many other rabbinic customs and obligations. In simple words, the rabbis gain power, control, and money. What's the agenda of the sages behind the creation of thousands of rules? It gives them power and control over the people. It makes the people dependent on them alone. It makes the people dependent on them alone, and this brings in lots and lots and lots of money. Rabbinic tradition fails to explain the Bible to God's people, but succeeds in gaining exclusive control over people's lives. Lastly, here's a challenge for Rabbi Yossi Misrahi and the rabbis in general. Can you answer these questions? If, according to your logic, the written law cannot be understood without the rabbinic tradition explaining it to us, how then did Adam and Eve understand the meaning of the commandment? Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the flesh of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28 Or the commandment not to eat from the tree of knowledge. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17 Was it possible for Adam and Eve to check in the oral law? Impossible, since according to the sages, the oral law was given together with the Torah at Mount Sinai thousands of years after the expulsion out of the Garden of Eden. Maybe Adam and Eve traveled into the future, studied a rabbinical yeshiva and traveled back to the past. Twisted trash, religious coercion, read on. There's more.